Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Good to talk again. Welcome, listeners, to the latest episode of The Other Hand. Apropos the conversation we had in the last podcast about the Dublin riots, we were reacting the day after they occurred, and obviously some information has materialized since then. And one of the interesting points is that a number of those who were arrested and taken to court by the force of law and order, we saw there was people from all over the country, basically, Roscommon, Ranla in Dublin, which would hardly be described as a deprived area of Dublin City. Somebody from Selbridge, there was an engineer, there was a student. So um, it's, it's clear that there was a lot going on with that particular situation. And uh, I, I think, and we said this on Friday when we were speaking, that while what I observed showed a lot of... Um, Scumbags, as I described them, going on a bit of a rampage, hitting people, destroying materials, setting fire to stuff, attacking the cops, etc. You'd have to say that obviously there are bigger players here orchestrating what, what's going on. I commented about the fact that a bookshop owner said to me that the bookshop was safe because um, these people wouldn't be actually... Um, engaged in looting of books um i thought it was quite amusing but one of our listeners took offense to that but there you are chris have you any further thoughts on what happened on thursday and what you've subsequently heard loads of thoughts jim as you can probably imagine i imagine lots of people have um both here and in in ireland but also elsewhere because as we know the rise of the right is now a global phenomenon on the specific Irish situation, there's a fascinating article in today's Guardian, and it's written by somebody called Stephen McDermott, who is described as the editorial lead for the journal's fact-checking unit. It's a fascinating article, and he essentially paints a picture of him and other like-minded people over the last while, warning continuously about the rise of the right in Ireland, citing lots of examples, not least the events of the last few days. And he talk, he begins by talking about the murder of schoolteacher Ashling Murphy. As you know, that's been in the media. That horrific murder has been in the media this week because of the trial of the person convicted of that dreadful crime. Uh, he was, of course, a Slovakian-born man, and that has fueled these sorts of comments, these sorts of articles. And the fact that the perpetrator of the stabbings in North Dublin 
uh, over the last few days, as I say, was Algerian-born, although a naturalized Irish citizen with residents going back uh, for two decades, according to reports. That appears to have been the event or the fact that fueled a lot a lot of what what happened next as being anti-immigrant sentiment as you have rightly said there would be multiple drivers of what happens just a rabble taking the opportunity to have a riot was undoubtedly one factor uh, looters taking the opportunity to loot was another but being organized by far-right sinister figures uh, whipping up anti-immigration sentiment was undoubtedly another uh, this writer in The Guardian says that the right-wing movement in Ireland managed to swell its ranks via lockdown, via anti-vax and anti-lockdown groups, all amplifying their messages on social media. And he says, post-pandemic, the government's failure to deal with ongoing social problems has given the far right further opportunity to grow. And then the list of the problems that you and I have discussed in many different contexts is then... Uh, presented. Swathes of people can't afford homes, parents struggle to find childcare, GPs can't take new patients, nobody can get a GP appointment, farmers worry about environment policies. The problems, he says, precede the current government, but in festering, the government has created fertile conditions for fear-mongering around a new issue, immigration. And it's immigration, I think, that perhaps permeates all of these different right-wing movements around the world, from Trump to the new returned leader of the Czech Republic to Orban in Hungary to Wilders in Holland to Le Pen in France, Giorgio Maloney in Italy. Uh, the list goes on and on. Um, this writer in The Guardian does quite rightly point out that as recently as 2020 in an election exit poll, 1% of Irish people considered immigration when they voted. And he goes on to describe the way in which right-wing sentiment specifically anti-immigration sentiment has never been a big deal in Ireland and hints throughout the article that it has been growing and I think clearly that's right. The question I have for myself, for you, for anybody else interested in this Jim is just how big has it become in Ireland? Is it as big as it is in Holland? I don't think so but you, you perhaps can tell me differently. Just how much do you think it's grown uh, particularly the anti-immigration sentiment since that 2020 exit poll? which showed just 1% of people, as I say. Um, so I think there's a very specific question about just how big a deal it is in Ireland, but it clearly is a very big deal in the rest of Europe and indeed the United States. As I mentioned, Geert Wilders is clearly one phenomena. He's having trouble forming his coalition. And so one of the things that one can say about the right in, in the various incarnations that it's taking, in some of them anyway around Europe, is that in order to take power, they have to tack to the centre. And that's what extremists generally have to do. But it's getting scary, Jim. There's an article today, another one I'll refer to by Gideon Rackman in the Financial Times, when he talks about Germany and France. And at the AFD, the alternative for Germany, their right-wing party, now regularly tops 20% support in the polls, he notes, making it the second most popular party in Germany. Uh, Francoise Hollande, the, the former French president, uh, told Rackman in a recent visit to London, and I quote here, the far right have devoured the traditional right in France. And that's something that's occurring here in the UK as well. You could argue that the right is in the process of completely taking over the Conservative Party and the next election here is going to be particularly nasty because the Tories are going to make immigration 
a front and centre topic for discussion, shall we say. And I'm not sure whether I've said it on this podcast before, but my half a forecast for the political developments post-general election is that Nigel Farage will make a comeback as a politician in the UK, um, and he will run for being head of the Tory party. You heard it here first. So there's a lot going on there, Jim. We could talk about the rise of the right in all sorts of different ways, but I do think immigration is the number one issue that is being hijacked by these people. Noah Smith wrote an interesting blog post over the weekend about the way in which immigration is clearly a big issue in the States, and Trump has hijacked that, the Republican Party has hijacked that, and it is a salient issue. Whatever you think you and I might think about immigration, whether we're for it, whether we're against it, uh, the the border with Mexico is clearly going to be a big, big issue in the United States elections. So as a good economist, I went away and tried to investigate one specific question about immigration. And the reason why I did this was I was listening to a vox pop with some Dutch voters in the wake of Wilders' uh, uh, election victory, if you like, last week, in which they said, "Let's." and you hear this so many times in so many different ways, you've heard it in Ireland, but why don't we keep the country for our own? Why isn't Holland for Dutch people? Why don't we spend all the money that we spend on immigrants on Dutch people first? And variants of that, I think you'll agree, are heard in Ireland. They're certainly heard here in the UK. And of course, people have tried to study this. What economic contribution, what economic costs are incurred by countries that have high levels of immigration? And in the first instance, the answer is clear. They don't depress, weight, depress wages, despite all the urban myths to the contrary. In the aggregate, wage levels are not affected in any material way by immigration. Immigrants typically pay more taxes than they receive in direct benefits. So when people do the calculation of things like unemployment benefits versus taxes paid by immigrants who are in work, it always comes out as immigrants contribute rather than detract from the economy. Cliff Taylor wrote an article for me over the weekend in which he pointed out that some colossal proportion of the workforce in Ireland are immigrants and how much poorer, therefore, Ireland would be if you didn't have those immigrants. And similar comments can be made here, particularly in the area of social care. We have a social care crisis here in the UK, just as many other countries do. And uh, it would be even worse if we didn't have all these people from overseas willing to work for the minimum wage. What we don't know, though, is the aggregate, because what there is no hard data on is the extent to which immigrants avail themselves of the broader and deeper range of services offered by the public sector. So things like the NHS here in the UK, we just don't know how much they consume versus how much they contribute. So the answer, I'm afraid, to the question, uh, do immigrants add or subtract to the economy, is hard to prove one way or the other. At one level, you can say they're unambiguous contributors. At another level, you can say we just don't know. Um, My instincts are to say that they are contributors, that if we had the data, they would say that, but it's important to state that we don't have the data. Are you aware of any such studies in Ireland, Jim? No, I remember a few years ago working with somebody from the Immigrant Council of Ireland on a report on the economic impact of immigration in the Irish economy uh, seven or eight years ago at this stage. And at that stage, it was quite clear that the economic and social benefits of immigration were very, very strong. And I actually haven't changed my mind on that. I think immigrants make a huge contribution to the economy. They make a huge contribution to the workforce, tax revenues, etc. Um, there have been a, a couple of examples 
uh, the guy you mentioned who murdered Ashling Murphy, and also allegedly the guy who was involved in the stabbing that prompted the riots last Thursday up in Parnell Street, that both of those were here in Ireland for a number of years. Neither had ever worked, um, had basically drawn social welfare, drawn the dole. And I I have no idea, you know, what sort of truth there is in that, but that's what's being stated at the moment. But 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 just because we have two extreme examples of that type of situation, I mean I, I could identify a lot of Irish people that would fall into the same category. You know, they have never worked, they have never made a contribution to um the exchequer and have drawn on the social welfare system. So I, I, I think to sort of name call immigrants as being sponges of the state, which the right tend to do, is totally and utterly wrong. I think all one has to do really, Chris, is uh, number one, look at the number of non-Irish who have come into the country, you know, since the last, between the last two intercensal periods, for example, and look at the contribution of non-Irish workers to the labour force over that period. And you'll see quite clearly that they have net net made a hugely beneficial impact to the Irish economy and Irish society and Irish taxes. I I remember about a year ago, uh, I was having a conversation with David McWilliams and he asked me if I thought the rise of the right was a serious issue in Ireland. Um, And I, at that stage, downplayed it. And I'm not sure a year later where I stand on that question because uh, clearly a lot has changed in the last 12 months with all of the Ukrainian immigrants that have come into the country. And that is definitely creating a lot of tensions around the country. And it's certainly been, we, we had Black Rock, or sorry, Bally Brack here in Dublin, for example. I think it was every Thursday night there during the summer, the main street in Black Rock, in Bally Brack, excuse me, was being blocked by anti-immigrant protesters and of course, the force and law and order stood back and did nothing about it. You know, I, I don't know the answer to the question, actually, because the you look at social media and if you get caught in that bubble, there's an amazing proliferation of far right views being expressed there in relation to immigration, in relation to uh, COVID, the vaccine, etc., um, and how representative is that of society as a whole here in Ireland at the moment? Um, I think it's not very representative, uh, but clearly it is something that will now have to be tackled. Friday night and Saturday night, there was a heavy guard of presence in around O'Connell Street and Parnell Street in Dublin. Any infractions were dealt with very quickly by the Gardaí. So I, I think the forces of law and order here have got to be expanded dramatically they've got to be given more powers they've got to be given more personnel morale in the garda in the guardi is rock bottom at the moment that needs to be addressed and it's in that context i think there is justification in being extremely critical of the minister for justice at the moment because you know ultimately the minister has responsibility for the force of law and order and there are many many problems in, in that particular public service at the moment that do need to be addressed. And we've always sort of said that health and housing are the two biggest national priorities. Uh, And I I think it goes without saying that law and order is absolutely central to everything as well. We've just got to address it. So I think 
we need to see much heavier investment in law and order because once this becomes ingrained in the system here, it becomes entrenched, it then becomes an intractable problem. I think there's still time to actually nip this in the bud and prevent it from becoming a systemic problem in the country and in Irish society. Uh, but in, in answering the question, I, I don't think uh, the far right at the moment from a political perspective are a significant threat in Ireland. In fact, you'd struggle to name either actual or potential far right politicians in this country. You, you don't have a, a, a Mosley like we had no, in the 1930s in the no, UK. No or God forbid, a Mussolini, or indeed a whole rake of other names that that I could mention. There does seem to be a rhythm about human affairs throughout history that these types of people, these authoritarian, demagogue, totalitarians, call them what you will, rise up and take advantage of people's grievances, grievances that are often real. Sometimes they're not so real. They're made up and whip up mobs. And in the past, they essentially relied on two things, their oratory... I'm thinking of Mosley and Mussolini and Hitler. They were fantastic public speakers, although awful human beings. It goes without saying. Uh, And pamphleteering, shall we say, back in the day, writing stuff that people then read. And those were the two ways in which these these mobs were whipped up. Um, But you mentioned, I think very importantly there, the new third way of doing it, which is really the main way, um, the social media bubble the social media cesspit that has been created that allows these people another vehicle for whipping all this stuff up. And I think that's something also that needs something done about it. And I think one of the things that we as individuals can do is essentially mimic the uh, sentiments expressed today by the mayor of Paris. Did I don't know whether you saw what she did. She wrote an, an editorial, which she's published, ironically, on Twitter. And it begins, Why I Am Leaving Twitter. Twitter, far from being the groundbreaking medium that initially made information accessible to the greatest possible number of people, has in recent years become an impressive tool for destroying our democracies. That's pretty heavy hitting, isn't it, Jim? Whether it be manipulation, disinformation, the fostering of hatred, harassment, anti-Semitism and open racism, or vicious attacks on scientists, climatologists, women, environmentals, liberals, and all those of goodwill who wish to engage in peaceful political debate in an increasingly complex world, the range of abuses is endless, not to mention the daily external meddling in electoral processes aimed at destabilizing our democracies and undermining their image and sovereignty. Today, controversy, rumor and crude manipulation rule public debate fueled by Twitter's algorithm, where the only thing that counts is the number of likes. Facts are irrelevant. This platform and its owner intentionally exacerbates tensions and conflicts. She goes on. It's really, really heavy-hitting stuff. You know that I've played with the idea of leaving Twitter myself, and I really, really reduced my activity on it. It's still a good source of news. It's still a good source of access to other people, decent people's thinking. It's not only a cesspit, but my God, the bulk of it is these days. So I, too, may well... very soon leave Twitter in the way that Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, and indeed many others, friends of mine, other prominent people uh, have left. Um, It's a real problem. And they're going to have to do something about the regulation of these things because it's 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 no longer about freedom of speech, Jim. It's about whether or not we are tolerant of these people, as this mayor of Paris says, essentially destroying our way of life. 
Yeah, Chris, it was uh, very sinister over the weekend in an Irish context. Elon Musk uh, was tweeting quite a lot about what happened last Thursday. He was tweeting a lot about the hate speech bill that the government is trying to push through at the moment. And he there was one tweet, I think it was Saturday night, maybe Friday night, uh, he was saying that the Prime Minister of Ireland, as he called him, hates his people. And David Colnan of Sinn Féin, um, who is a representative of Waterford, where I come from, um, he immediately tweeted, no, he's not. Um, and, and, and I was quite amazed and very impressed, actually, uh, that, you know, Sinn Féin now starting to stand up to this, even if it meant being supportive of government. Uh, that does give me hope, actually, that um, the Irish political system is capable of managing this. Um, that was only, you know, one green bud, but it, it certainly did um, encourage me. In fact, Friday night when I saw it put me in good humour. I just thought it was a very positive political development we have. On the other hand, pardon the pun, um, you know, Mary Lou MacDonald was very quickly out of the traps um, having a go at Helen McEntee, the Minister for Justice, and the Garda Commissioner drew As you, what you, 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 I sense from what you said earlier on that you agree with her criticisms of Helen McEntee. Well, I, I don't know, Chris, to be honest. I would have always been a huge fan, but at the end of the day, she has responsibility for law and order. And clearly what happened last Thursday night was a significant breakdown of law and order. And there's no doubt about it. Anytime I've been in the north inner city, in recent times, any time of the day or night, you know, there is a real edge around there. There's open drug taking um, that th there's a lot of it's edge. It's edgy. That's the word I would use to describe it. So, you know, and the guard of presence has never been very strong in there, at least in recent times. So, you know, at the end of the day, that is the responsibility of the guard commissioner and the minister for justice. And um, unfortunately, they're falling short at the moment. Is that reason enough to sack him? I don't think so. I think the hope now would be uh, that we learn from what happened last Thursday and we react very aggressively. I would love, to, as I said there earlier, I would love to see the Gardaí having a significant increase in resources, um, get morale back up in the police force as quickly as possible. Because if you do not have a properly resourced, properly funded, high morale police force, well, then, you know, life becomes nasty, brutish and short, to quote somebody else. Thomas Hobbes. Thomas in, Hobbes, absolutely. In the Leviathan. And, yeah. The, I think the way we square that circle about Sinn Féin's criticism and your criticism of both the police and the minister is to say that calling for their immediate sacking is just political grandstanding and really, in my opinion, st struck a bum note. And I think a lot uh, we've had a lot of people ask us that question, actually, what did we think about that? And I think that your response there was a much better one, much more constructive one and far less grandstanding, if you don't mind me saying, which is to say that, OK, yes, we can criticise clearly because things have gone wrong. And that's just stating the blindingly obvious. But let's come up with solutions. I don't think going around sacking people is going to be the solution. It's about resourcing at the end of the day, but also deeper issues such as culture within the guards and other aspects like that. So, yeah, I think, it, it, you know, it's a very complicated problem. And if you stand up yet again and grandstand with simple solutions, 
do we think that firing these people will make the situation better or worse? I know where I sit on that. Chris, going back to the Dutch situation, just to sort of update what's happening there, um, the Party for Freedom, or the Freedom Party as it's known in the Netherlands, won 37 seats in the elections last Thursday out of a 150-seat parliament. Um, 26 parties actually contested that election, which shows the fragmentation of the Dutch political system. Um, and the challenge now for Wilders is to try and get a coalition together with one or two other parties that would get him over the magic number. That will prove very challenging. There's no doubt about that. And it'll be more challenging from now because I don't know, did you see the news that the person that he appointed as his negotiator to seek out a coalition partner has been sacked or has resigned, not sure which, um, in his first day in the job because his previous employer, the University of Utrecht, has accused him of fraud. So that that is a bad start to the well, whole. I think that, I can't remember the exact saying, but there, there's an old cliche about how if if you if you lie down with dogs, you'll get fleas. Yeah, well, that's and it. Yeah, absolutely. The, the problem with a lot of these extremists is look at the company that they keep, uh, or indeed have kept in the past, and we could go on and on about Sinn Fein and the company they have kept in the past, or indeed the people they have been in the past and the things that they have done in the past. But all over the world, these these extremist politicians of both the left and the right have laid down with dogs, if if not being dogs themselves. And yeah. um, th- you then find that their, their person appointed to be their chief negotiator or whatever position that they give their friends and, and colleagues, uh, they've got a, a murky past and sometimes a very murky recent past in the case of this particular person. It, you, in a way, it's just... It's just one, almost like one cliche after another, isn't it? It is indeed. Looking at the the reasons given for the success of Wilders in the election, two things have been identified. One is his anti-immigration stance, particularly his anti-Muslim stance. There we and go sec- again. Uh, yeah. And secondly, and it's related, it's the housing shortage. And of course, immigration feeds into that narrative as well. You know, housing and immigration, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty common theme across many countries. Chris, I made a comment in the last podcast, I know it's one we've made several times, uh, that I've been slightly taken to task on. And that is uh, basically saying that the, the left, the far left and the far right um, have gone so far in either direction that they've met in the middle and that it's very difficult to distinguish the far left from the far right at this stage. The horseshoe theory of politics. Exactly. And I was particularly intrigued by looking at some of Wilder's economic policies. Um, You know, he's talking about significant increases in welfare payments, for example. So very much a sort of a far left policy rather than what you typically believe to be a far right policy. And of course, that all comes under the umbrella of populism. Yeah, and they're anti-EU. Yes, anti-EU, absolutely, yes. They're anti-globalists, which yes. I make no apology for saying that's an anti-Semitic dog whistle. Yes. Uh, they're pro-Russia. Yes. That They uh, all would stop immediately giving any kind of assistance to Ukraine. So, except, and, and so except they, Maloney. Well, there are exceptions to yeah. every rule. There are exceptions, yes. Um, but generally speaking, if you... 
If you know that somebody's an extremist these days, you can wheel off the list of things that they're for, and more importantly, the list of things that they're, they are against. Because, the, because they are our parties of grievance, we also, all, usually find out what they're against rather than what they're for. Now, Chris, can, can I make a, a couple of points, if I may, <laughs> in, in relation to uh, Irish housing? Just uh, an interesting tidbit that appeared in the Irish Times today. Um, back in 2017, a system was introduced, a strategic, a strategic housing development initiative. It was to fast track the delivery of housing. OK, it was scrapped last year, uh, but it, it turns out that 22,000 houses that were actually fast tracked through the system have not been delivered because of a, black, a backlog in on board Planola. And we have spoken so many times about the systemic failure of the Department of Housing in delivering housing. And this is just another exist, example of the system not working. Um, another point on relation to Australia, I've spoken in the past about Australia's housing situation. Uh, there's a piece of legislation going through the Australian Parliament this week where terrorists will be stripped of their Australian citizenship. Uh, that's one response. Um, but I, I found a more interesting story. A top doctor in New South Wales said that public hospitals in Australia are increasingly becoming a place of last resort for ageing members of the community. And that basically the Australians have been let down by aged care and primary care. So proving the point that uh, the grass is not always greener in Australia. Chris, it was excellent to talk again. I look forward to reconvening. Cheers, buddy. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.